I just want to ask you a real simple question, and I'm asking myself this question this morning. Um, man, what am I doing here? You know, I just don't, I don't know if you thought about that today. Like, what are you, where, why did you come this morning? Well, I'm supposed to come. It's great. Um, because if I come, I get credit with God. Um, because if I don't come, somebody notices, and then I got to explain to them why I didn't come, and that can be awkward, so I'm just going to come. I'm here because my wife yelled at me and uh, got me in the car. I think at the end of the day, when you strip all those surface reasons, uh, we're all grown adults here, and uh, you came for a reason, and I think that reason is because you want to be affected by God. You, You want God to speak into your life, and that's what this prayer has been. Slow me down so that I can be affected. Slow me down so I can tune my ears to the voice of God. Slow me down so that when I open up the Bible that I brought with me, I'm actually taking in what it's saying on on the page. And I love this quote that I heard this week um, by this old preacher. uh, When we stop being affected, we become ineffective. When this stops moving your heart and soul, then there's very little purpose to your life. So maybe for you and for me, it's been a long time since you were really affected by the Word of God. More than just, I'm blessed and I'm built up, but affected, deeply affected. Maybe it's been a long time since you were deeply affected by the glory of God in the light of your sin and my sin. Maybe it's been a long time since you were affected by the expression of your heart in worship. And I just wonder if that could be our prayer moving forward. I want to be affected today. Whatever that looks like, God gets to define those terms, and you get to make specific requests. Let's just pray together in the spirit of family today. God, we want to be affected. We want to be changed. We want you to speak into our lives. We want you to be coach. We want you to be consultant. We want you to be cop if necessary. We want you to be caregiver. We want you to be our father. And so whatever role of a father you need to play in our lives today, we just say that we want that. We want that. If you need to police my life today, then I just say be welcome. Be welcome. If you need to just give comfort to somebody, then we say be welcome. If, if we just need to be shaken, if we need to be startled today by the glory of God, I pray that would happen, Lord. Uh, a sleepy church is a worthless church, and so we don't want to be that. We don't want to be that. So I pray just you would just raise the level of expectation from we've sung and now we're going to hear a word and hopefully to be a little bit entertaining and then we're moving on with our day to God is going to speak to us. We believe that. We're the people of God. We have the word of God. And so our Father is going to speak to us. And so we're listening today. We're listening. So I pray for somebody today. It's their first time to really tune their ears to your voice and and you need to come through for them. You need to come through. You tell us in your word that you speak to ordinary average people uh, like us. And uh, and so you need to come through, Father. So I pray that everybody who's looking for a word today would get a word. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Why don't you turn to the person on your right and say, I'm glad you're here. You take your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians So we've been in this field series and 
We have this amazing video, which I just skipped, and, uh, but you don't need to see the video. But uh, the idea is that the fields are white with harvest. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 4. Another place, he says that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And, and we're trying to change that here at Bayou City Fellowship. We don't want God to look at our family here and go, I got a lot of work for them to do. I've got a lot of harvest for them to reap in to the kingdom, but I couldn't find anybody who was willing to work. And so we're calling this series Fields because God has given you a field to work in. He has given you a field in the same way that somebody might ask you, what field of work are you in? You might say, I'm an engineer, I'm in construction, or I'm a teacher, or I'm a stay-at-home mom. What field of kingdom work are you in? And the idea is that we would look up from our lives, from the urgency that's in front of us, and we would see the field. We would look up and then we would look out. So you have a field. We've talked about that. There are people in your field, which some of us would rather there, you know, just be a field uh, without any people in it because the people bring the mess, the people bring the criticism, the people bring the knots in your stomach. Uh, you know, that's what is stressful about your job. It's not the to-do list. The to-do list is easy. It's the people in the to-do list that give you knots in your stomach. And so there are people in your field, but God has prepared you for that and he's given you credibility. We've talked about that. And today we're going to talk about something a little different from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 about your field. I remember my uh, uh, first semester of my sophomore year of college, I walked into my dorm room and my roommate was sitting there and he was watching a uh, VHS tape of a preacher. Uh, which wasn't super odd because he is a, a guy who loves Jesus and loves the Word of God and he was going to be a pastor. And so it wasn't unusual. I didn't think much about that. But, uh, you know, he was kind of into it. And so I'm trying to just come into our room without, you know, interrupting what he's doing. And so I'm sitting there and, and I start listening to this guy because our dorm room was about the size of this little square that I'm standing on. And so that was about the only option if you're going to be in the room. And, and so I start watching this guy preach, and it's an old tape. I mean, it's a VHS tape, for crying out loud. And, and uh, he was just the oddest-looking preacher that you had ever seen. He was in, in his mid-40s, but he had a super long jet-black ponytail, like all the way down to his back. I had never seen a preacher with a long ponytail like that. Uh, he uh, had real buggy eyes, you know, like when he talked, like his eyes just bugged because he was a yeller. Now, he wasn't like a mean yeller, like a scream at you, you're a terrible person, but he just yelled a lot. I mean, he'd yelled when he was telling you how amazing you were, and he'd yell when he, he was telling you how awful you were, and he kind of did everything. You know some people like that. They're just real animated, and so he's screaming, and his eyes are, are bugging out of his head, and he's got this long ponytail, and then he kind of walked a little bit funny. In fact, he had a real large upper body, but he had real small skinny legs, and so I say to my roommate, like, What's, what's up with this guy? Why, why does he look so weird? You know, what he's saying is amazing, but why does he look so weird? And he said, well, actually, um, when he was a young, uh, young boy, he got polio. And so his you know, legs essentially stopped growing, and, and that's why he walks like that. Well, I felt like a horrible human being, obviously. And so I'm locked in now to what this guy's saying. And he goes through this real, like, this coughing spurt. Like, not just, <clears throat> I need a drink of water, but like this deep, deep cough that came from his chest. And then he did it again, and he did it again, and again. about the fourth time, I asked my roommate, well, why is he doing that? He was actually born with cystic fibrosis. 
Like, are you kidding me? This guy has polio. He was born with cystic fibrosis. He said, yeah, what's more than that? You didn't see this because you came in late. But they actually wheeled him in his wheelchair up to the stage. He gets on the stage. He preaches. And then he gets back off and sits in his wheelchair. So he only has enough strength to stand while he preaches. And then, and then he tells in his sermon. He said, yeah, um, it's worth it. But I'm going to go home and I'm gonna, or to the hotel. And, and I'm going to cough up blood all, all night long. Because I, I preached here tonight. I'm listening to what this guy's saying, and I'm looking at him, and I'm, I'm getting a little bit informed by his story, and I could just, like, I couldn't shake it. The, the combination of the powerful things that he was saying, along with all that he had been through in his life, along with all that he was going to go through that very night, was a combination that I could not get over. And in your field, which God has called you to, your unique trial, your unique struggle, your unique suffering is harm in the moment, but it is useful in the grand scheme of things. See, it is your birthright as being born on planet Earth to go through trouble. You know that. But it is your birthright into the kingdom of God that that trouble would serve a purpose. And that's what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. A church that he started, that he pastored, that he led for quite some time. This is what he says in verse 5. Now I consider myself in no way inferior to the super apostles. Though untrained in public speaking, I am certainly not untrained in knowledge. Indeed, we have always made that clear to you in everything. So he calls this group, this unseen group, the super apostles. It may be worded differently in your version of the Bible. But what happened was Paul comes into Corinth. He starts Corinth. He gets it on its feet. He played a pivotal role in its earliest days. But God's call in his life was to move from place to place to start new churches, starting with the Jewish people in the synagogues and then moving to the Gentiles. And, and so he left Corinth. Well, when he left, other preachers would come through. And so there was this group of what he's calling super apostles who came in behind him and are doing a couple of things. Number one, they're preaching a gospel that's a little bit different than his gospel. It kind of sounds the same, but the differences really are dangerous. And so that's one of his reasons for writing this letter is to point out the dangers in this new gospel that they have brought. And what these super apostles are doing is they're also undermining the credibility of the apostle Paul. Because they were super loyal to Paul. Paul was there in the beginning of their faith. But these new guys go in and they're like, why are you listening to Paul? And they're like, what do you mean why are we listening to Paul? It's the apostle Paul. I mean, he was the first one to bring us this good news of Jesus. And they're like, well, you, here's what you don't know about Paul. And slowly they undermine Paul's authority. So by the time we're reading 2 Corinthians, there's been some correspondence between Paul and the Corinthians. And he's like, why are you questioning me? And a lot of the purpose of this letter that we call 2 Corinthians is him reestablishing his authority. This is why you should listen to me and not these super apostles. 
You know, Satan will always use super apostles to tempt you into giving up or stopping short of giving your all. Super apostles, those people that you look at and go, I could never read the Bible as much as they read it. I could never serve in the way they, they serve. I could never be as gifted as they are. I never, you know, spend that much time in my life. I can't imagine doing that. Satan will use their um, superiority to make you just quit altogether. Or to do the bare minimum because you know you'll never be able to do the maximum. But Paul does not let their new place in Corinth shake him. Look at this humble confidence that he has. He says, I'm not inferior to the super apostles. He says, though untrained in public speaking, he's like, yeah, listen, I'm not the greatest preacher in the world. It's not what I was trained to do. A humble confidence. He knows who he is. He knows who he's not. And when you and I realize that, who we are and who we're not, it gives us that humble confidence. Humble because I know who I am and I know who I'm not. Confident because I know who I am and I know who I'm not. Then he goes on. Let's skip to verse 16. He says, I repeat, no one should consider me a fool. But if you do, at least accept me as a fool so I too may boast a little. What I say in this matter of boasting, I don't speak as the Lord would, but foolishly. So what he's saying is, listen, these guys have come in, these super apostles, and they've done nothing but promote themselves. Promote themselves, promote themselves, promote themselves. Listen, don't confuse arrogance with anointing. Don't confuse self-promotion with promotion from God. Just because somebody tells you how wonderful they are, it doesn't mean that they are wonderful. Just because somebody subtly lets you know how godly they are, doesn't mean that they're godly. Just because somebody displays an act of righteousness, doesn't mean that they're actually righteous. And so Paul says, listen, if you're going to let them boast, then let me be boast too. Don't, don't count me as a fool. All I'm doing is what they're doing. And then he says, I'm not speaking as Jesus would. What he's essentially saying is he's saying, I'm not saying that Jesus would do what I'm getting ready to do, but I'm getting ready to do what I'm getting ready to do. And this is what he says. Verse 18, since many boast in an unspiritual way, I will also boast. For you being so wise, gladly put up with fools. Meaning, don't judge me. I'm judging you because you guys have put up with these super apostles. In fact, you put up with it if someone enslaves you, if someone devours you, if someone captures you, if someone dominates you, or if someone hits you in the face. This is what he's saying these super apostles have done to the Corinthians. I say this to, to our shame. We have been weak. Now, Bible scholars believe that he's being sarcastic there. So if you're a sarcastic person, you can maybe have some biblical evidence to continue in that lifestyle. But in whatever anyone dares to boast, I am talking foolishly here. I also dare. So he's going to go through his resume here. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. What he's saying is, are they a part of God's original people, the Israelites? Yeah. Well, so am I. Then he says this. Are they servants of Christ? Then he interrupts. I'm talking like a madman here. I'm a better one. So Paul just throws down the gauntlet here. He's been real subtle. You know, I'm humble confidence. And then he just gets kind of fed up in the letter. And he says, listen, they're from the original people of God. I'm from the original people of God. Hey, let's just get it out on the table. If we're comparing apostleship between me and these super apostles, I'm just going to tell you I'm better. 
You know, on your college application or your, some of your first job applications, how you like padded your resume? And I know you guys didn't do that because you love Jesus and you're super godly. But, you know, people like me, it was like, you know, you gave your parents a, or your grandparents a, a Christmas present. So you put on your college application, like passionate about serving the elderly, you know. <laughs> You voted, and so you put on your resume, uh, very involved in civic government, you know. Um, we, we pad our resumes. That's, that's what we do. We try to put ourselves in the best possible light. And so this is what the Apostle Paul is going to do. He's going to put out his resume and think about all the things that he could say after he says, I am a better one. They think they're servants of Christ. I'm a better servant of Christ. Think about what he could have listed there. He, he could have said, I've started many, many churches all over the known world. He could have said, I've preached the gospel of Jesus thousands and thousands and thousands of times. Uh, he, he could have said, uh, I know the original disciples of Jesus and I have a relationship with them back in Jerusalem. Uh, he, he could have said uh, things like, uh, one time in Ephesus, the power of God was so on my life and my body that people were bringing their clothes and their aprons and their handkerchiefs and they would just touch me with them and then they would take those things back to their sick and demon-possessed and those sick and demon-possessed would be healed. The power of God was on me in such a way. And then he could have just dropped the mic by saying, and oh, by the way, I've raised somebody from the dead. I mean, that would be like you would lead with that in your resume, right? I'm a, I'm a servant of Jesus. Oh, how good are you? Well, I raised somebody from the dead in his name. And people would be like, cool, what do you want to say? You want to lead the meeting? That's fine with me. You know, if Apostle Paul came in here this morning, like I would gladly step aside. I've never raised anybody from the dead. Hey, by all means, if any of you have, by the way, come on up. That seems like what you would say if you were trying to prove that you are a better servant of Jesus than somebody else. But look what he says. Far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, near death many times. Five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods by the Romans. Once I was stoned by my enemies. Three times I was shipwrecked. See, the others, they're persecution. And you may be thinking, well, I've never been persecuted. But he was shipwrecked. Natural disaster. Unseen catastrophe. We've all experienced that. I spent a night and day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the open country, dangers on the sea, and dangers among false brothers. Labor and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and lacking clothing. Not to mention other things, there is the daily pressure on me, my care for all the churches. So when he says, throwing down the gauntlet, I am a better servant of Jesus than these so-called super apostles, he doesn't list all of his accomplishments. What does he list? He lists his struggle. He lists his trial. He lists his suffering. That was the credibility that he put forward 
And the reason that these Corinthians should follow him and listen to his teaching. He says in verse 29, Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble that I do not burn with indignation? If boasting is necessary, I will boast about my weaknesses. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is praised forever, knows I'm not lying. Jesus said to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble because that's what happens when you're in the world. You have trouble. Amanda and I have uh, some friends right now. Um, The lady, she was diagnosed with cancer many years ago, did treatment, surgery, fought it, beat it was in remission, and you know the story. In the last year, it roared back. It didn't just come back. It roared back, and they did experimental uh, treatment, and it seemed to be effective, but at at Christmas, they essentially told her, we we think you have a couple of months to live. And she had a couple of things uh, these last few months to really fight through, but those things have now been accomplished, and, and so it's now just any day. And you know somebody in that story, too, or you have a story of your own. In this world... You will have trouble. But in the kingdom of God, your trouble has a purpose. In in the kingdom of God, your trouble can be a tool that you use in your field. I love the story of Joseph. Fourteen chapters at the end of Genesis are dedicated to the life of Joseph or, Joseph or cover the span of Joseph's life. You can turn there if you want. We won't read it all because 14 chapters, we'd still be here at lunch, lunchtime. But uh, it's interesting to look at the, the story of Joseph because it's really a bunch of short stories that make up one pretty long story. And uh, what happens in uh, starting in uh, Genesis chapter 37 is we meet Joseph. That's the first short story. And Joseph is the favored son of his father, which is great if you're the only son. But Joseph wasn't the only son. He had a lot of brothers. The second short story we get of Joseph is those brothers saying, why are you the favored son that makes us angry? And you kind of milk it a little bit. It's one thing if somebody is the favorite. It's another thing if they know they're the favorite and they let you know, right? It's okay for that one person at work that they're kind of the boss's pet and favored one, but it's different if they really kind of juice that a little bit. And that's what Joseph did. He was the favored son, but he kind of enjoyed it a little too much. So his brothers say, hey, this is story number two. Should we kill him? No, let's, let's not kill him. That doesn't seem that brotherly. Let's just sell him into slavery. <laughs> and so that's what they do. That's the second story, short story of Joseph's life. His brothers sell him into slavery. The third short story is... Joseph getting to Egypt as a slave. The fourth short story is Joseph being a slave in the house of a very powerful man named Potiphar. And if you're going to be a slave, be a good one. And Joseph was one, and Potiphar really respected him, but he's still a slave. The next short story is Potiphar's wife saying, Joseph, I think that you're real handsome. Let's go to bed together. And Joseph says, no, I'm, I don't do that kind of thing. So she says, well, you tried to harm me and she screams out and the next short story of Joseph's life is him being thrown into prison after being falsely accused. The next short story is Joseph's life in prison. The next short story is Joseph interpreting a dream for two other prisoners. One ends up before Pharaoh and Joseph just says in that short story, hey, when you get in front of Pharaoh, remember me. But in that short story, he doesn't remember Joseph. 
The next short story is Joseph still in prison. But the next one is Joseph getting out of prison, interpreting Pharaoh's dream for him himself, and Joseph being promoted to the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And in that, God gives Joseph a plan to save Egypt from a famine that's coming. And because he saved Egypt, he ends up saving those same brothers that sold him into slavery. What does the story of Joseph tell us? It tells us the short stories, there's a lot of harm. But in the long story, the harm is useful. Joseph never saves Egypt unless he's falsely accused. Joseph doesn't save his brothers and his father and the rest of his family unless he's sold into slavery. And you may be in a short story right now and all that short story seems to serve in your life to bring you harm. It's against you. It's, it's harming you. It's harmful to you. But we have to remind one another that our lives are not just short stories. We're in a long story. In fact, we're in a longer story than our lives. I mean, think about who can say that on planet Earth. Not very many people can say that the story of my life is actually longer than my life. And we have to remind one another when we're in the midst of the short stories, hey, the short story, it stinks and it's awful and it's not good, but we're in a longer story. And in the kingdom of God, the short stories can be useful in the long story. And somebody in here today needs to be reminded that this is just a short story. That it's not the sum total of your life. That no matter how this season ends, it's not the only season. And that's what Paul is doing. Paul is padding his resume as he proves that he is a better apostle of Christ, that he has more credibility than these super apostles. What is he using? He's using short stories of harm for a purpose. I mean, I don't think when Paul was uh, being stoned that he was thinking, man, this is an incredible season of my life. I'm super pumped about this as the rocks are flying at my head. I don't think when the ship was going down, he's like, man, this is amazing. We're living the dream right here. I don't think that's what he was saying. I don't think when he was being beaten over and over again by the Jews or over and over again by the Romans or when he was at danger in the open country or when people were falsely accusing him, I don't think he was the guy that was going to go, man, isn't this so wonderful? Man, God is so good. This is so wonderful. He was probably a guy like you and I that's like, this stinks. But it's just a short story. I'm a part of a long story. So Paul uses his short stories of trial and struggle as being useful for the cause of Jesus in this world. And what does God do in us in the middle of those seasons of struggle and trial? Same thing he did for Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, if you want to turn there. It says this in verse 17. Talking about Jesus. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tested and has suffered, he is able to help those 
who are tested. So what the scripture is saying is that Jesus had to become like us, uh, his brothers, um, in the flesh, son of God, but come in the flesh, 100% God, 100% man. He had to be like us because he himself was tested and has suffered, and he's able to help those who are tested. You turn to the page to the right, chapter 4, verse 15. It says this again about Jesus. For we do not have a high priest, that's him, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus came in the flesh. He wasn't just Superman, Son of God, coming down to rescue us, sweeping in, rescuing us, and then back up into heaven. He wasn't just Superman, Son of God. He became like us, 100%, born of a woman, just like you were born of a woman, tested in the same way that you've tested, suffered in the same way that you've suffered. Why? So he could identify with us and he could sympathize with us. And this is what God is building in us in those short stories of trial and struggle. He's building in us the ability to identify with people and sympathize with people. Like when early on in my ministry, I hated going to the hospital to visit people. Isn't that a terrible thing to say? But I just hated it because I was so nervous. I'm this young guy, I'm in ministry, part of your job is to go visit people in the hospital, and I'd, I'd never been in the hospital, I didn't really know anybody who had been, I didn't have first-hand experience, and so it was like the, the, the sicker you were, the, the less I wanted to come and visit you. You know, if you like barely broke your arm, like I would come and visit you, but if you were like in there for a long time, I didn't want to, because what am I going to say? You know, walk in and go, so how's it going? You know, like of course it's going bad, and I was just terrified that I was going to say something stupid, or that they really weren't going to know me and there's going to be this awkward like you're from my church but I don't really know you and what are you doing here I'm in the most pain I've ever been in my life and you have the audacity to come here and say these things to me like I was just terrified of it until I was in the hospital I uh, had a long story short I uh, had appendicitis but uh, like on steroids because if I go I go big or I go home right I don't do it if it's not going to be extreme and so the surgeon gets in there and Sews me back up because there was like no appendix to take out. It just exploded into a million pieces. It was amazing. I'm a modern medical miracle. And, and, uh, and so they sew me back up. They clean it out a little bit in there, all that poison and all that kind of stuff. And so the doctor says uh, to us, well, you're going to be in here a while because of all the infection that had been going on in your body. And, and that's what happened. I was in there for a while. So now... If you're in the hospital, I'm happy to come and see you. I mean, I'm not happy that you're in the hospital, but I'm glad to come and see you. I don't feel scared at all. Why? Because I can identify with you. I know what it's like to be in there. I can sympathize with you. I know what it's like uh, for the, the, the nurse to come in to check, check your vitals and to get your blood pressure and take your temperature and I know what it's like when your temperature is too high and it means you're going to stay in there for another 24 hours, but you're ready to go home. I know what it's like um, for them to say, probably tomorrow. And then it's not tomorrow. I know what it's like to have the big wave of support in the first 24 hours. And then it's just kind of you hanging out. I know that real unique and awful smell that you get after you've laid in a hospital bed for a while. So now I'm happy to come. Why? Because I can identify and sympathize. 
Listen, you may look out on, on your field that God has called you to, the responsibility in the kingdom that he's given to you, and there are people in that field, and you're going to think, man, how on earth am I going to connect with these people in this field that God has called me to? Listen, if you can identify and sympathize, you will never cease to have opportunity to lead people to Jesus. If you're like, I don't know where to start, identify and sympathize. There are not that many people in the world who are willing to say, I know what it's like to be you. And I am sorry. Sorry doesn't mean that much to us when we know the person has not gone through what we've gone through, does it? I mean, you appreciate the gesture, but it doesn't have the meat. It doesn't have the weight. If I say to some of you parents sending off your kids to college in the fall, hey, I'm feeling for you. You're going to be like, no, you're not. (laughs) Your kids are six and nine. But if I sent my kids off to college and say, I'm feeling for you, it's got weight there. So you go to the people in your field that you can identify with and sympathize with and let God take that story, short story of trial and struggle and use it for something good. Well, Paul goes on in chapter 12, verse 1. He's still boasting, but he's boasting about his weakness. Boasting is necessary. It's not profitable, but I'll move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who was caught up into the third heaven 14 years ago. Now, Paul's talking about himself, but he's being humble. And so he's just saying, I know a guy, but we know that the guy is him. And you know that from reading on later on in the letter, what comes next. So he says, 14 years ago, I know a guy, but the guy is him. This guy was caught up into the third heaven. The first heaven is the sky right above us. The, the second heaven is the stars that we see at night. And the third heaven, that's the realm of God. And so what Paul is saying is, I got a vision that I was caught up in the realm of God. That heaven that we talk about, I was there in that place. He says, whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. So what he's saying, I don't know if I actually went there physically or if I was just there in a vision. It, it doesn't matter. God knows. But I know that this man, verse 3, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows, was caught up into paradise. And he heard in inexpressible words, which uh, which a man is not allowed to speak. What that means is in heaven, they're not speaking English. And in heaven, they're not speaking Hebrew. And in heaven, they're not speaking Greek. And in heaven, they're not speaking Latin. They're speaking a language in heaven that we do not know. And I will boast about this person but not about myself, except of my weaknesses. For if I want to boast, I will not be a fool because I will be telling the truth. Meaning he said, if I wanted to just come out and admit this was me, I could because I'm not lying to you, but I'm not going to. But I will spare you 
so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears in me. This is remarkable because if I wanted to prove myself to people who were falsely accusing me, I would be like, listen, I've raised somebody from the dead. You've done that? No, you've not done that. So back off. Listen, people touched me with their clothes, took those clothes back. People were healed. You've done that? No, you haven't done that. Back off. Listen, I got caught up into the realm of God. I've been in the realm of angels. I've looked up and I've seen him with my own eyes. Has that happened to you? No, that's not happened to you. Then back off. But he says, I don't even want to play that card. I want you to judge me on what you hear from me and what you see in me. And he says in seven, especially because of those extraordinary revelations, meaning I don't want you to listen to me just because I had this amazing experience. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. He's like, I got caught up into the third heaven 14 years ago, but I'm paying the price today. Because I could just brag about that and boast about that the rest of my days. I could just tell you in so many words what that was like. But so that I would remain humble. I got a permanent, permanent agent of suffering. Verse eight, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away from me. Three times he prays, let it pass. If you are praying for this short story to pass, but Your short story doesn't seem like it's that short. Maybe like Paul, you have a permanent agent of suffering. For many Bible scholars, they think that it was some kind of physical ailment that he had. Maybe it was his eyesight because he references that in one of his other letters. Maybe it was something else. They don't know. But if you have a permanent agent of suffering, meaning something that is in your life, causes you trouble, and no matter how much you pray, it just doesn't seem to go away, then like the Apostle Paul, you can know a couple of things. He is going to give you strength in it to persevere. I'm telling you today, you're going to make it. And he's going to use it. And you're going to be able to identify and sympathize in your field, which God has called you to. And then look what he says in the next verse, verse 9. But he said to me, that's that's Jesus. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. There's something about trial and struggle that tunes our ears to the voice of Christ. So if you're in a short story of struggle, don't waste it. Don't waste it listening to other voices. Take the opportunity when your ears are clear to hear the voice of of Jesus. And what does he say? My power is perfected in weakness. That word for perfected, uh, it means completed. It's the same idea and the same word grouping when Jesus was on the cross, his very final words were, it is finished, meaning it is complete. Everything is done. There's an idea of something going full circle. And what Paul is saying, or what Jesus is saying to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My Full circle power is perfected in weakness. Meaning my power has the ability to do its complete work 
in you and I when we are weak. You would think, and I would think, that the best combination is our strengths and God's strengths together. That that would be an unstoppable force. I mean, that feels unstoppable, right? I mean, you're thinking about you and your best light, and I'm thinking about me and all the things that I'm amazing at, and, and we're all thinking about us. It's like, if I could just partner that with God's power, man, that's going to be so amazing. Everybody in my field is going to come to Christ. But that's not the combination. The best possible combination is Christ's power and your weakness. If you're in a short story right now of toil and struggle, you're at your best. Maybe like, I'm not at my best. I'm at my worst right now. I don't have any emotional energy. I'm worn out. I am broken down. I am beat down. I don't have anything to give. Right there is you at your best in the kingdom of God. See, somewhere along the way, we've let it sneak into the church that you are at your best when you are at your best. That your best day is your best day. Man, I can do anything today. I'm feeling it. I'm full of it today. I'm at full strength. Man, I got my message all prepped up and it's ready. And I got a laugh here and a giggle here and a moment here and a joke here. It's going to be perfect. And it's going to be a, man, it's going to be a strong right hook at the end. It's great. Listen, I want to ask you a question as we finish today. Are you too strong to be strong in the kingdom of God? Right now, are you too strong to be strong? Look how Paul finishes this section. It's crazy. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. Can you imagine going and leading a Bible study? You get done with it and somebody says, how'd it go? You're like, I was awful. I was just miserable. I was terrible. I was prepared, but it came out all wrong and it was awful. And they seemed bored the whole time. It was, man, it was great. I was totally weak. I was prepared, but weak. Paul says, I'm, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. I'm not going to come out of the Bible study and be like, I'm amazing. I knocked it out of the park. It's my best one yet. I said, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. Why? Verse 10. So I take pleasure in weakness, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and in pressures because of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I don't know that we caught that. Let's just read that again. Think about how insane this is. Think about how otherworldly this is. So I take pleasure, means I'm happy about weaknesses, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and in pressures. Anybody in that boat today? Anybody feeling weak today? Anybody feeling insulted today? Anybody just had a catastrophe come on your house uh, this week? Anybody feeling persecuted this week? Anybody under pressure this week? Anybody take pleasure in that? No. Paul does. Paul says, I take pleasure in those things. He says something equally as insane. Philippians chapter one, verse 21, when he says, 
For me to live is Christ and die is gain. See, the only way that you can take pleasure in those things, insults and catastrophes and suffering and struggle and trial, the only way that you can take pleasure in that, the only way that you can look on that in any kind of pleasing way is if you love your field more than you love your life. It's the only way. It's the only way. That you can say, I love these people that God has called me to. These people that God has put in my hand. I love them more than I love my own life. I love them more than I love my comfort. I love them more than I love my own happiness. I love them more than I love my own free time. I love them more than I love my best day. That's the only way that you can, in any kind of sanity, say what Paul said. When, yeah, man, this short story, it's been awful, but I'm taking pleasure in it because I know in that short story of trial and struggle, I get to see the full circle power of God. Not just a little bit because I was so strong, there wasn't that much left to fill up. So it was like a lot of me and it was a little bit of the power of God. But in this short story, I need the full circle power of God. And uh, man, it's going to let me identify and sympathize with the people in my field. And I love them more than I love my own life. So I'm going to take pleasure in this. I'm going to look at this and say, this is bad, but it's also good. This is awful, but it's also useful. That's a miracle that only God can do in your heart. It's just a miracle, that gentle transition. Somewhere in the midst of the short story, you reminding yourself, or somebody coming alongside and say, this short story sucks. The long story is good. We live in the long story. Listen, this week, don't be too strong to be strong. You are not at your best in your field when you are at your best. So God, we pray for just your power to come on us now. Not power added to power today. We just admit today that we're weak. We admit that we're in a short story of insult, catastrophe, persecution, frustration, pressure. So in our weakness, come and show your strength. We don't know what that looks like. We don't know if it means that you're going to rescue us from this story to another story. We don't know if it means that you're going to resolve everything. We don't know if it means you're going to just give us some supernatural peace. We don't know what it looks like. But we're just saying your full circle power in our lives today. That's what we're asking. Completed and perfected power. We ask these things in the strong, holy, redeeming name of Jesus. Amen. I'll let you stand to your feet. We're going to finish our services today with a time of ministry and prayer. So that team is going to come forward now and take their places up here. A couple of invitations. Uh, First, um, are you a servant of Christ? And what that meant for the Apostle Paul is not, uh, are you doing a bunch of stuff for Jesus, but are you connected to Jesus? Because everyone in his mind who's connected to Jesus is a servant of Christ. Are you connected to Jesus today? 
Not by good works, not by trying real hard, not by coming to church, but have you looked at Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and said, that's what I need to fix me. If today you're not sure that you're connected to Jesus, as other people are going to come forward to pray up here in front, you just make your way over to my right and your left to the access room. There'll be people over there. They'd love to tell you their story of how they became connected to Christ so that you also can leave with that assurance today. But for the rest of us, we're going to move in time with this ministry and prayer. And here's what we're praying for today. Pray for anything. you got something on your heart that you brought with you in your pocket. That come and pray for it. This is what family does. We pray for one another. But if you are in a short story of trial and struggle today, and you want to ask that it be removed, come and ask. Paul says, hey, I tried it. I tried it three times. And that's more than just three, one, two, three sentence prayer. It means he repeatedly and intentionally came back filled with faith. God, remove this thorn from me. James says that we have not because we ask not. And so if you're in a season today that you want to end, come and ask for it to end. Also come if you're in a season that you've already done that. You've already said, God, take this, change this, and it just hasn't seemed to change. You want to come and say, God, use it. Help me get through it and use it. Then that's what's on the table today. For somebody to come alongside of you in prayer in a way that you can hear them. Say, you're going to make it, and he's going to use it. So God, we pray that you would make this time of prayer the ministry that we need it to be where we feel both filled with faith and filled with perseverance, tenacity, God. We do pray, Lord, that if it's in your heart for some of us to end this season of struggle and trial, that it would be ended today in the powerful name of Jesus. And if it's not in your will for this season to end, We pray that and know that we're going to leave with the strength to look it in the face, hold our head up high, and use it in the field that you've called us to. So answer answer these prayers. Make it holy and pure and righteous. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together and you come and pray as God lays it on your heart.